Hello, faithful listener, and welcome to the Small Voice Podcast. I'm Darren. And I'm Holly. Um, in this month's podcast, we'll be reviewing the excellently titled novel, For Thy Great Pain, Have Mercy on My Little Pain. We'll see how many times I have to keep repeating that during the podcast. Um, and that's by Victoria McKenzie. Um, this book's been getting much high praise since its publication earlier this year. It's a fascinating read, and we're looking forward to telling you all about it. And we'll also bring you a bit of exciting news about a new online venture from the team here at Small Voice Towers. Ooh, spoilers. But first, let's do a regular health check. How have you been, Holly? Oh, I've not been too bad. Um, just a, a kind of re- relatively ordinary month. Um, but we've had a lovely time exploring Scotland. Uh, my wife and I went to Arran for the first time. Um, my father-in-law was up visiting a couple of weeks ago. And uh, that was a really restorative trip. It was, we just went for the day, got the ferry over in the morning and got the ferry back in the evening. Um, saw a huge variety of wildlife and uh, uh, my wife went swimming in the sea and we, we did a little bit of walking and uh, that was really lovely. And then from Scotland to somewhere a little bit further afield, I've also discovered an absolutely fantastic um, Eritrean slash Ethiopian restaurant in Glasgow called Mossob, which uh, I went to with some work colleagues. And I'll have to take you to the next time you're through in Glasgow. So just to be clear, this is you talking about food, not me, Holly. Yes, and uh, and <laughs> we're getting some uh, Eritrean Ethiopian food rather than some Italian food. So uh, yeah, uh, we have range. I think that's that's. <laughs> Speaking of Italy, if I may, uh, uh, my wife and I were in Italy for two weeks, just got back uh, at the start of this week, which I would say was heavenly. What was hellish was discovering the morning that we were meant to be coming back that our flight had been cancelled. So you might want to get out the world's tiniest violin because we had to spend an extra day in Italy getting from Florence to Bologna to then uh, fly home the following day. Um, it was stressful um, to a fair degree. Uh, and I have to say, <laughs> you get no sympathy at all if you message your friends about that, that form of problem. That is absolutely a first world problem that no one really cares about. I mean, I was going to tease you, but like travel delays are genuinely stressful. I think regardless of whether you're stuck in Bologna or I think my last one, I was stuck in Belfast, um, which was... Uh, a different kind of stressful, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, possibly absolutely. less than being stuck in Italy. And listen, we would have to do a whole other podcast on this, but I will say that um, if ever, you know, we think about what we used to call this heaven and hell, um, hell was coming back to discover the Tory party conference. Um, as I say, it would take a separate podcast to talk about the the bile and vitriol and hatred that we are seeing from certain corners. Suella Braverman, we are looking at you. And apologies for international listeners who are, who are wondering who that is. I hope you never have to find out. It's the, but, the last gasps yeah. of a dying party. One would. Yeah, my worry is it's the it's the birth pangs of an even worse one. But but hey, may, maybe for another time. Um, Let's change the tone and talk about our fabulous listeners. Thanks as ever for getting in touch with your thoughts following our recent podcasts. Yes, regular listener Sheena thanked us via our website for dealing with a difficult subject in our last podcast when we talked about the conviction of former nurse Lucy Letby. Sheena said, I am surprised that people can't quite believe that a nurse would deliberately cause harm to patients. There are so many examples of this. 
Doctors killing or abusing patients, teachers, trainers, priests abusing vulnerable people in their care. Why do they do this? Abuse of power, perhaps? Who knows? But Sheena also goes on to say, people are capable of extreme acts of selflessness, as well as acts of unbelievable cruelty. Would I have acted any faster in believing that Lucy Letby was killing babies? Probably not. Meanwhile, on the platform formerly known as Twitter, and again talking about our last podcast, Nick Jones from the Seen and Unseen team got in touch. If you haven't come across it, look up the Seen and Unseen website, Christian Perspectives About Just About Everything. Anyway, regarding our discussion of the Lucy Letby case, Nick said well done on being so thoughtful on this one. He then sent us a link to an excellent article on their website about this particular case, and we'll share that link online. And finally, Katrina tweeted to say, thank you one last time on this platform, a really excellent set of reflections exploring the questions I have also been pondering. Katrina ends by saying, see you elsewhere. Which brings us nicely to the bit of news that we trailed at the top of the programme. Yes, faithful listener, as mentioned in the last podcast, we have taken the decision to stop using Elon Musk's Twitter or, if you will, X platform. You'll know that you could find us there using the handle at small underscore voice one, but given the recent changes to the platform, which has seen an ever-increasing and unmoderated supply of fake news, hate and vitriol, well, we just don't feel it's a safe space for the small voice panda anymore. But we didn't want to lose contact with our friends and followers on Twitter, which is why we're going to move to a new social media platform, which we think will allow us to keep in touch. So here's our news. We need a bit of a drum roll here, Darren. Um, I don't know. How, I don't know whether you could hear that, but I did do a drum roll. Um, you, you can now find us on Substack, and um, where you can subscribe to get our posts, which will come mainly in the form of a weekly-ish. We'll try our best newsletter. Um, plus, uh, we'll let you know when new podcasts are available. For those of you who are new to Substack, it basically runs by email. Um, how quaint. We're going uh, back to the 1990s. Yeah, yeah. But it's a fabulous platform. Um, you won't have to join up um, or make an account. Um, all you have to do is go to our Substack, enter your email address and click subscribe. Um, and of course, it's free and hopefully, uh, unlike Twitter, will stay so. Indeed. Now, we will post a final tweet on the X platform and we'll keep it up there for a short while, which will include a link to our Substack. But if you can't wait that long, well, pen and paper at the ready. You will find us now, right this minute, using the handle at small voice. So that's at small voice, all one word, no underscore, no one, just at small voice. Or you can head directly to our Substack using the web address smallvoice.substack.com. That's smallvoice.substack.com. A lot easier to type than to say, I can assure you. And basically all you do is enter your email address and click subscribe. I hope we haven't made that sound hard. It's, it's genuinely easy. And we got the um, we got the handle at smallvoice, which is, uh, is, is quite jammy. Yeah. Um, and Substack is such a, a lovely platform. Um, you can still contact us via um, our other platforms as well. So on our website at smallvoice.org.uk or on our Facebook page or by emailing the dot team at grf.org.uk. We are making ourselves very easy to get in touch with. Absolutely. But as for X forward slash Twitter, well, sorry, Elon, it's the end. 
but the moment has been prepared for. This month we're going to discuss the novel For Thy Great Pain, Have Mercy on My Little Pain by Victoria Mackenzie, which came out earlier this year. This short novel is based on the lives of two 14th century mystics, Julian of Norwich and Marjorie Kemp, and explores medieval women's lives, the effects of grief and trauma, and the genesis of women's writing. Holly's going to read an extract which describes Julian of Norwich's thoughts and feelings as she goes through the ceremony of becoming what was known as an anchoress. There is a ceremony to become an anchoress. A nun is a bride of Christ and so has a nuptial mass, but becoming an anchorite is a death. I had to die to the world. I bade farewell to my friends and asked them not to attend the ceremony or to visit me in my cell. I dressed in black and walked alone to the church, my hands trembling a little. I asked God to give me courage and serenity. I was just a woman, but he gave me strength. I stood before the bishop and Master Thomas. Other priests and men of the church stood to the side, witnesses to the ceremony and no doubt curious. It was not every day that a church acquired a new recluse. My voice was quiet but calm as I made my vows of poverty, chastity and stability of abode. I gave up my name. For the second time in my life, I was given last rites and felt the cool oil slip across my forehead. More details about the ceremony are described and the section finishes with My cell was on the north side of the church. I approached it a sudden wind chilling me as I waited for the bishop's words that were the signal for me to enter. If she wishes to go in, allow her to go in. The choir sang, Be of good courage, thy desire from God is at hand. And I stepped inside. The floor of the cell was bare earth, with fresh reeds scattered over it, and violets for a sweet scent. I stood in my cell and the bishop and Master Thomas scattered earth on my shoulders to remind me that I was come from the earth and would return to the earth. Then they stepped out of my cell and two workmen stepped forward. In silence, they bricked up the door. I knelt on the floor dazed and fearful. I wanted my mind to be driven deep into God like a nail. Thanks, Holly. Um, I feel I could almost just, um, we could start discussing now just that last line, which is astonishing. And I think 
shows to me that we are dealing with a person who is a poet and where every word is really, really carefully considered because this is a short novel. But I, I would say it packs a punch, but I'm conscious that I was the one who kind of recommended this, not having read it, but just because I saw it uh, in a bookshop was really taken by the title and then discovered that it was a book about Julian of Norwich and someone else who I had not heard of. Now, I will fess up, my knowledge of Julian of Norwich extends to one or two famous quotations and knowing that she was a she and not a he. Um, so to my mind, this seemed a bit like a, an Avengers mashup of bringing together two two different characters, although it does turn out that they did meet. Marjorie Kemp did seek advice from Julian of Norwich, but when Julian was an anchoress, so they wouldn't have seen each other. There was, a, I think, a curtain or a veil between them. Um, so I am conscious that this, is, this was kind of my recommendation. Um, I read it on the flight from, let me get this right, Bologna to Heathrow, because it's quite a short book. And I'm really, really anxious or keen to hear what you thought of it. I mean, I think it's it's fair to say exactly what you said. This is a, a poet's novel or a poet's novella. Um, every sentence is very carefully written. And um, as someone who really enjoys poetry and someone who um, is very, very interested, I think it's impossible not to be interested in um, mystics. Uh, for, for me, it, it's not possible to not be interested in mystics. But I think there's something about anchorites or anchoresses, the idea of being bricked into the wall of a church. Once you've discovered that that is something that people did. And, and did you know that? Yes, I, didn't. I, I knew you that knew. Julian of okay. Norwich was a was an anchoress. And once I discovered what an anchoress was, I did a internet deep dive of long duration. And uh, I, I think it's because... I am I'm straying away from the novel. I'm, I'm aware of that. I think because I am quite an extroverted person and I really need the company of others, I I think I'm fascinated by the idea that anyone could do that um, to themselves um, for whatever reason. But in terms of the novel, I when I, I read it um, on Aaron, most of it, um, so just sitting on a bench uh, surrounded by other people from my family who were also reading and I initially have to say I think I was in the wrong frame of mind and I thought that it was a little bit thin mm -hmm. that there there wasn't as much there as I wanted um, and then subsequently I couldn't stop thinking about bits of it I think that um, that description of um Julian of Norwich's uh, funeral or requiem mass as she uh, gives up her life to to become an anchoress was so potent that I find myself picking up the book again and just flicking through and looking at little vignettes and um so I I I'm very clear now that my initial um my initial thoughts about it were wrong that I I didn't approach it as if it was poetry I approached it almost like it should have been a, a biography of these women and it mm -hmm. wasn't that. Um, so yeah, I, I loved it. And I think particularly the way um, Mackenzie was able to um, give these two women a really distinct voice um, from each yeah. other. Um, I thought mm -hmm. that that was really marvellous. What did you think about, about it, Darren, beyond the title? 
<laughs> but I am I'm smiling because right at the top of the programme you talked about the fabulously titled uh, book um, and someone very close to me said, what a rubbish title. Um, so I guess it, it takes all sorts. Um, I, you know what, I, I don't think the best time to read this is necessarily on a plane either. Um, I, I can imagine, I, I will reread this book. I'm absolutely sure that I will. Um, I sat on the plane, I got out a little pen to kind of mark passages, you know, a bit like doing homework um, for the podcast. And I found that I was marking quite a lot. And then uh, earlier this week, I kind of tried to write out some, and, and I, I could just sit here and quote. I could quote and quote. And there, there's a point where Julian um, says, Oh, my speckled soul. I just, I just, I just wanted to burst into a, a, applause. I, I, I don't know um, the, the source material well enough to know. I, I recognise where um, Victoria McKenzie has slipped in some quotes, you know, all manner of things shall be well is in here. Um, but yeah, I, 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 I liked it. Saying that, my, my, uh, if you'd asked me when I got off the plane, I would have said, that's a three and a half out of five star mm. book. And when I came to write some notes about it, I thought, no, it's a four star book. And then within an hour, I thought, no, 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 it's a four and a half star mm. book. And when I was thinking about it today, you know, I was thinking, you know what, just give it the five stars because I think it is quite unique. I am fascinated by it being written by someone who's not a person of faith um, because I think it's it's a great introduction to to Julian of Norwich and her her theology or, or her philosophy. But I am conscious that we've not yet talked really about Marjorie, have we? No, not at all. So I have to say, I had heard of Marjorie Kemp because um, I had a, a friend, um, my, my wonderful friend, Debbie, who died a couple of years ago. And um, Debbie was a, a medievalist. That was what she studied. She was doing a PhD in medieval studies. And she talked about both Julian of Norwich and Marjorie Kemp as if they were close personal friends. Um, so while I hadn't read the book of Marjorie Kemp, um, I felt as if I at least kind of knew who she was. And uh, I think um, that the reason for that is because these are uh, these are women who wrote books, which is incredibly unusual. So Marjorie Kemp. Um, wrote through dictation the book of Marjorie Kemp, which is considered to be the oldest surviving autobiography in the English language. And she was born in the late 1300s. That's amazing. <laughs> so this this woman um, give, gives an account of it. It's really probably very anachronistic to talk about um, being middle class, but this is a woman who wasn't rich. She was kind of a merchant class person. So it's an account of a, a reasonably ordinary human being living during medieval times which is is fascinating that that exists um and julian of norwich for we've talked about her being an anchoress but uh, she um also wrote uh, um a, well didn't write a book but wrote um writings that were later published as a, a book that's now known as the revelation um revelations of divine love which are some of the earliest surviving english language writings by a woman so there's uh, that's it is amazing that these two women existed at the same time and that they met each other but goodness how different they were from each other <laughs> <laughs> so um in contrast to julian of norwich marjorie kemp had what 14 children used to work as a brewer 
um and uh she had uh some a uh, religious some mystical experiences having had a bit of a life and was married and uh and had many children had these religious experiences and then went on to do some things that um see i don't know i i wonder whether it's because I don't really understand medieval times, but seemed quite extreme for a medieval woman. So she she travelled around the world. She went to Santiago de Compostela. She went to Rome. She went to Palestine. Um, this book where does... She, where she would upset the um, the worshippers with her copious weeping. Yes, she uh, she was quite demonstrative. Um, I read, um, I was watching, and I would thoroughly recommend watching them if you want a bit of background. There's um, a man called Anthony Bale, who was the editor of the um, Oxford World Classics edition of the Book of Marjorie Kemp, and he talks a little bit about her writings um, on YouTube. Um, and uh, he called it, uh, oh, let me find it, Disruptive Bouts of Visionary Weeping. <laughs> she, so um, she was quite she was out and about in the world living a life and also being a mystic and being quite demonstrative about about those things yeah um, i mean she's painted as a very a very human character you know at times quite vain in contrast to, to julian did you think it was kind of did you sense a kind of comic effect or not so i I didn't interpret. I I thought that in many ways Marjorie Kemp, although she was she was, she's what in modern parlance we would probably describe as a bit extra as a human being, mm-hmm. um, very demonstrative. But there was I thought there was a real sadness about about her. Um, mm-hmm. She was someone who, um, I guess, latterly wasn't huge hugely happy with her her lot in life I, I think wished to to perhaps not not have lots of children and to not be married and I think if she'd had her time again probably would have been a nun and uh, so the she or, wouldn't have been a quiet nun though would she no she would have been a kind of Maria from the sound of music kind of nun yeah. <laughs> I think yeah how do you solve a problem like Marjorie Kemp but I think I was interested she was a bit of a snob she clearly liked the finer things in life, but also wanted to sh- to shun all of those things. And I think she's a mass of contradictions. Um, and I I thought she was, I didn't think I would necessarily get on with her if we met, but I thought she was a fascinating woman. Um, and I think it's amazing that we know so much, uh, autobi- we know enough autobiographical information about her that from her own in her own voice that there was able to be a novelization that had mm-hmm. quite a lot of detail in it. Um, and I, th- I really thought that um, Victoria McKenzie managed to capture a real voice. And yeah. I would be really interested to, I've never, as I said, I've not read the book of Marjorie Kemp and I would be interested to, to read parts of it, to see whether I, I, I heard the same voice there. And I imagine that I would, because it seems that this is quite an astute portrait of a human being. Yeah. I mean, an important point to make, which definitely comes out in the book, is that, you know, at this time, telling people publicly that you were having visions was incredibly dangerous because chances are you would be denounced as a heretic and so you could be stoned. So the contrast that is made 
is that Julia Norwich told no one about her visions. I mean, that's Victoria um, Mackenzie's take on that. I mean, obviously she wrote it down and eventually it was published much, much later. Um, whereas Marjorie Kemp did did not keep quiet at all and stood on street corners and told everyone. And there are sections in the book where she is not quite tried for heresy, but she's, you know, she's she's kicked out of various towns or put into jail, but then let out of jail and is, is really a, a fascinating character. Mm. Um, yeah. There's one thing I, I thought, actually, Holly, as a question, in, in a sense, who was braver? I think that's a fantastic question. I... Uh, because Julian Julian chose, I mean, a, a really difficult decision. But I mean, in 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 Victoria Mackenzie's version of this, she had lost her family to the plague. She had lost her husband. She'd lost her child, and she decided she was going to become an anchoress. I I think it it's worth thinking a little bit about the religious experience that Julian of of Norwich had, um, which appeared to have been a series of um, visions that happened in quite a discreet period of time that utterly changed her life and that she went on to reflect on for decades um, and and refine and to, to think about them. And um, that would not be a privilege that was afforded to many women in medieval times to be able to sit and reflect and refine and to think and not have to run a house and not have to mm. be married and have children and and to not have to, to earn her earn her keep in in many ways although I, I um I saw from the book uh both from this novel and, and a bit of reading around it that um anchorites were often independently wealthy because the, the church yeah. the church didn't want to pay for them to be <laughs> to be recluses to be so bricked up yeah, yeah they had to pay for themselves so i think there is something unusual but kind of proto-feminist in some ways about about what what both of them did in many ways but i think there is something about julian going into her cell and basically being a bit of a theologian um mm -hmm. That wasn't something that was afforded to to women. Although I was, I didn't expect in the book for her to then absolutely hate. I mean, she she went, she decided to be an anchoress precisely so she could spend time, you know, get getting closer to God and reflecting on these visions, and then she hated it. She spent, I I don't know, I can't remember if she puts a time on it, but maybe the first ten years thinking I have made absolutely the wrong decision and so on. I found that interesting. That was a kind of nicely sort of human angle on it. It's interesting. And I think, uh, I wonder whether Victoria Mackenzie drew on um, some accounts of uh, monks and nuns, because I, I have heard a, or, or read some, some works by people who've lived as part of um, monastic communities, reflecting on how difficult the first bit is. I, I think... It it really is a proper. There's no life like that. You've not. Um, you've you can't imagine what it will be like to never touch another human being again. So, how do you how do you prepare for seclusion? And it, and, and I know being a, a it, living in a monastic community is very different from that, but it's also completely different than the world. So how do you 
how do you prepare for something that you can't even imagine um mm-hmm. i'm glad to see that uh uh they gave her some cats to, <laughs> I like, to keep her yeah, there's a, a lovely bit of uh, humor where she says something about her her cats are unimpressed i think she takes some kind of pet or other and the cat's dismayed or something but he talks about um cats won't be excommunicated <laughs> or, or cats can't be excommunicated yeah yeah i think i i i'm interested in i the experience of of mysticism as well by, by yes. both of these women i think um you know i'm i'm quite drawn to mystics uh my um one of my my work colleagues is a buddhist and uh, he says that uh, the contemplatives from all religions find each other eventually because we have <laughs> more more in common with each other than we do with the uh, with more rational people um but i um I was struck by the differences between the, I guess, the, the religious experiences that these women had mm-hmm. um, with, a, I, I think, most of what um, Julian of Norwich experienced, I would describe as being reasonably comforting. Yes. In, challenging, but comforting. Mm-hmm. And Marjorie Kemp had a real variety of experience um as described in the um the novel from things that were that sounded a little bit disturbing to things that were very comforting to everything yeah. in between and uh, there's a, a wonderful there's a wonderful line um Jesus commanded me to stop praying so much say, <laughs> saying that even if i said a, th- um, a thousand paternosters every day it would please him more if i was silent and allowed him to speak <laughs> Yeah, and there's a. I think there's uh, when she's preaching or or oh no, of course she's not allowed to preach. That's the thing. As a woman, she was not allowed to preach, but she was allowed to talk about her visions. And apparently, someone in the crowd said, "You were there at Christ's birth and death. You do get about." <laughs> oh dear. And I think it's so difficult to talk about these experiences because you know we only have these. We've got these two accounts, very rare accounts of women at this time. And they are both women that are describing uh, re- mystical religious experiences. So I don't know what that says about how culturally normal it was. And I guess we know in the book of Marjorie Kemp, she was kind of hounded out of villages for some of the things that she was saying. So she can't have been having a completely normal experience or a typical experience. But certainly she she was felt to be a heretic. She wasn't felt to be crazy. And... That's, um, I guess it's an interesting distinction, and we'll never know what these women experienced. And um, I mean, just what what's your take on that? Because I I think there's so much writing out there about um, mysticism and uh, mental illness and mm-hmm. trying to like look back into the past and and I guess <laughs> guess what was actually going on with with these people. Which um, I'm not sure whether all of that is incredibly helpful. Yeah, I, I read a review of the book, or maybe it was an interview and review with um, Victoria McKenzie. But Victoria McKenzie makes it clear that she's not a person of faith, although she's clearly fascinated by uh, Julian of Norwich. And um, I, I think it's it's a book that offers a great deal of comfort for people of faith. So we'll maybe come on to that. But the reviewer kind of made it clear in their review that there was no question in the reviewer's mind, but that Marjorie Kemp and uh, Julian of Norwich 
could not have had visions. There's just no such thing as a religious vision. So this was a kind of a form of mental illness or 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 trauma. You know, they that it's reinterpreted as that. You know, uh, in modern day times. Um, now, I think <laughs> in my reading of the book, the the jury's maybe out. Shall we say generously on on the wide range of visions that Marjorie Kemp had, but I find it fascinating that um, what Julian of Norwich was able to say, reflecting on those visions, is of astonishing comfort to us still today. Um, you know, I think you could bottle it as medicine. I think in many ways the writings of Julian of Norwich have become canon for many, many people. And I, I think the fact that they have endured the test of time says something about their power. Um, you know, it is unbelievable, really, that writings of a woman from the um, 1400s are uh, still read and still bought and still talked about and still tattooed on people and uh, mm -hmm. hung up on walls. And um, anyway, it's, it's amazing that uh, the Bible is still read. And I, right. I, I think there is certainly something amazing there and something about the fact that there was this woman before the Reformation sitting in a Catholic church, having had a requiem mass in Latin, writing about how God revealed God's love to her in English is, is incredible. Mm. And I, um, I think say it's difficult because I, I, I could not be as clear as that reviewer to say that God was not speaking to and through, um, these women and uh, particularly if God was telling Marjorie Kemp to stop talking and let him get a word in <laughs> anyway. Did, did you find yourself trying to diagnose as a kind of, as a healthcare professional? Were you reflecting on that or not? I, I, not really. I, I guess Victoria McKenzie does appear to be kind of pointing you towards believing that Marjorie Kemp had postpartum psychosis. Um, so was having something related to childbirth because that seemed to be when things started. Um, but it's it's difficult to say. And I think I, I think about other people who've had religious experiences. I, I, I've read um, if I, if you've read the works of Karen Armstrong and she talks about her mm -hmm. religious experience that she had before going on to be diagnosed as temporal lobe epilepsy. And I, I think that's really interesting because mind body spirit i i think that there's a huge connection there and in some ways you know just because and i know karen armstrong thinks differently about this but i would say just because karen armstrong experienced those things because of temporal lobe epilepsy doesn't make them any less real if they were things that she believed and took comfort in so i think it's i think it's incredibly complicated but i also don't think we can in the same way that we can't look across cultures so we can't look at people in other parts of the world who um express their religious experience in different ways than we do we can't look across time and say and diagnose people because actually at the yeah. time 
there's clearly, I guess, a, a social norms aspect of this, that they had beliefs that were in keeping with the social norms of the day in which they were living. Yeah. Um, so complicated. I, I, I find it interesting, though, to to look at the parallels. You know, you, you'll know that earlier, in, and faithful listeners, you'll know that earlier in the year, we've been talking a lot about faith, doubt and grief. And some of the comments from Julian about grief, about the loss of her daughter in particular. I, I, it certainly made me think, I'd be surprised if Nick Cave isn't reading this book, if you remember us, us um, reflecting on, on his uh, his views, his his discussions with Sean O'Hagan uh, after his son had died. Um, I mean, I've, I've got a list of quotes here, but you know, if we talk about grief, um, I think she... Uh, Sorry, I say Julian says, but this is this is Victoria writing. Grief marks a person, changing them forever. And talking about her daughter, she says, if I wanted to remember, I had to do it myself. I had to wade through all the pain and grief, force myself through it to find the shining pictures of her that my mind had locked away. Um, again, I say that's really powerful. And, and let's be fair, that's coming from Victoria. I don't think that's in mm. Julia of Norwich's writing, but it seems it seems in place. It seems in place both in the in the 1400s and in in the 21st century. I thought that part about how, how so that the beginning of that section, um, the, the character of Julian in the book talks about, um, um, I think, essentially her husband coming to her in her dreams but her child doesn't and she has to 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 that herself as a, by an act of will um and i thought that that was incredible writing and so incredibly astute about grief and um that uh, that quote about um grief changing a person um it goes on to say that a, a, a person experiencing grief is like a tree struck by lightning the tree might keep growing, yes. but they, they don't grow in the same way. And I, it was, it, it was just astonishing writing about, about grief. And it made me think actually of another, because I always, I used to say I didn't like historical fiction, which is clearly nonsense. Um, but the, <laughs> the book that changed my mind about liking historical fiction was Hamnet by Maggie O'Farrell yes, which yes. is another book that deals with grief in um in an incredible um incredibly astute and uh and real from a mother's way. point of view yeah yeah yeah, um, yeah absolutely uh, the other thing I find interesting in terms of echoes down through the day is that you know I guess Julian was concerned about being thought a heretic she, she would not be welcome in evangelical circles. You know, this is this is a woman, basically saying there is no there is no hell. God is love. So you know, it's fascinating. She would have been okay. She would she would have been she would have been flamed on Twitter. There you go. Yeah, and uh, I know that. Um, going back to my my medievalist friends, Debbie. Um, she wrote some blog posts and wrote some blog posts for the Student Christian Movement blog about um, Julian of Norwich and uh, suffering, I think particularly after Debbie was diagnosed with the brain tumour. And uh, there was a lot of comfort taken from 
from the writings of, of Julian of Norwich, regardless of whether she was a heretic or not. <laughs> and uh, I I think, as as we've said, I think this is an amazing portal into um, starting to think about Julian of Norwich um, and starting to think about Marjorie Kemp. And certainly I dug my copy of um, Revelations of Divine Love, which I think Debbie bought me um, off my shelf, um, having read this book to to start to look at those writings again because uh while this this is a fabulous novel and i would thoroughly commend it to to anybody it's also uh a, a, a glimpse and an invitation to to read a bit more about these absolutely fascinating women i think yeah i i absolutely 100 percent agree for Thy Great Pain, Have Mercy on My Little Pain by Victoria Mackenzie is published by Bloomsbury and is available in hardback and audiobook now and we would uh, thoroughly recommend that you get your hands on it. It's got a beautiful cover as well if you um, if you get the, the, the print edition. Absolutely. Well, faithful listener, that's all from us for now. We'd love to hear your thoughts on the novel if you've read it already or now feel like reading it or if you want to comment on any of the issues we've raised in discussing the book. Send your thoughts and comments to us on our website at smallvoice.org.uk. On Facebook, you can email us at the.team at grf.org.uk. Or, as we mentioned earlier, very excitingly, you can now subscribe to get email updates from us via Substack with the handle at smallvoice or by visiting smallvoice.substack.com. You're right, Darren, that's not very easy to say. smallvoice.substack.com. Thanks so much for being with us, faithful listener. We'll be back soon, and remember, all manner of things shall be well. <laughs> <laughs>